Welcome back to the Time for Heroes podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. This week, my guest is Andy Miller of Dodgy. Um, we're going to go through Andy's career right from the start. Um, so, as we do with all the podcasts, Andy, what I'd like for you firstly is, what was your early life like growing up? What was it like for a young Andy Miller? Well, again, I've never had that question before. Never gone about that far. But um, early life, yeah, with my uh, four sisters and two brothers. Mm-hmm. So we had a family. Um, all older sisters um, and uh, younger boys. Uh, underneath the sisters, I'm the middle brother, so second youngest. So it was a big old family running about, paying up. You know, garden in uh, in Norfolk, West London, um, for many years. Uh, yeah, learning to fight with my brothers. You know, um, you know, <laughs> seeing some uh, some new young lads coming into the, our territory in the in the area, and right. we go and check them out, and you know, there'd be some sort of ruckus in the field up the up the road, but nothing too harsh. We were bottling windows or anything like that. I don't think that's it. You know, something in a while. <laughs> the postcode um, was about falling around for a long time. We did up until probably, you know, I think my brother still had his teddy bear when he was about 13, 14 still. You think I was to get to get to grow up properly, but um, I mean, one by one, my sisters uh, started moving out and that. And it just ended up where my, my parents left, uh, my they split up, uh, my mum left uh, my dad when I was about 10, I think. So um, uh, that was a bit of a tumultuous um, time. I not really, really mean recognising it until maybe in later life about, you know, being a bit distracted at school. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, wanting to you know, find something that was into, I'd be, you know, just imaginative mind. Um, wanting to uh, find some groove, you know. Um, and it wasn't until about what, 14, 15. I mean, I was starting listening to music. Okay? So when my other sisters, obviously, they were like one was the eldest sister was in Pink Floyd, uh-huh. David Bowie's and that. And every morning before they were going to school, the radio would be on, the countdown, the charts were going on, and the house was full of music. Um, but I'd see these albums around. So I was one of the first things I was just getting into uh, David Gilmore, um, his, his style of playing for some reason. I didn't even know what a guitar was between a guitar and a bass guitar. I didn't know what, what I was. It's a bit of a uh-huh. 50-50. I wanted the guitar, but I could have come home with a bass guitar and realised it's a bass guitar. <laughs> <laughs> I know so little about the instrument then. But luckily, I got I got uh, one. But I got one for Christmas. I get one for Christmas where, um, uh, yeah, it was a pretty um, un- badly made guitar. I could fit my um, fingers between the fretboards and the string. Right. Could fit, yeah, the reaction was so high. I think it was really difficult <laughs> to play. But probably the best thing to do is like running in in sand when you're training, you know. So, yeah. you know, got the calluses all done up, you know, pretty early on, you know, we were playing that sort of stuff. And it actually, Christmas morning, it took me half a day to even realise that to press the strings down onto the fretboard. Yes. <laughs> and this is like this is day one, day one of learning. <laughs> I was upstairs, and, and I was euphoric when I suddenly felt that you know when I pressed it down. I played a note. <gasps> oh my god! Because I was just playing it open like that. 
face down and I, and I ran downstairs and I, and I was like, boys, look at this. <laughs> 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 Just the one note. Right, like, they're thoroughly unimpressed. <laughs> Game so, changer. Obviously, you, you mentioned your, your sisters then, the Pink yeah. Floyd. Uh, what, what other influences was there? Well, I only went to this. Well, wasn't me. Um, of course, my other brother was coming back from starting work, um, and he he got into he got with a friend who's like they swapping albums with each other. So mm-hmm. the next thing would have come along would have been Deep Purple. We'll come home with a Deep Purple record, and um, yeah, I'd be into that for quite a while. Uh, but then the next one, more more impactfully, was um, coming home with Jimi Hendrix Isle of White record. That right. changed it for me. I have that boom. I'm like, what the fuck is this? Um, and uh, and and then you know just me just trying to learn by ear really just like that and um I, I, way above me Hendrix was so I fell into the grasp of Led Zeppelin said so it was like Led Zeppelin um, Jimi Hendrix um, again mm-hmm. a lot of stuff comes from my brother my older brother would come home with records um, you know I wouldn't really be going and buy I'll be going and buy records and CDs and do that you know eventually so going through our teens um. It was all cassettes and stuff like that back then. So walking around with a Walkman with um, odd and um, Odgun's not gum flakes, the small faces going around. So I'm uh-huh. looking up to the books to buy my brothers some fucking crisps and stuff. <laughs> so you know, um, so we'd be uh, you know, that kind of gradual um, eyes opening of a very you know, it's still quite foggy and rocky. Yeah. Part of uh, say the seventies, basically this one I'm growing up, born in '68. So growing up through the 70s, it's very close to, uh, to a rock style of, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's funny because all, all, those, um, all those bands you've mentioned, they're, they're also kind of intricate in their, their, their playing and their guitar work. It must be, for a young boy, it must be so hard to kind of comprehend what's going on in these these songs and the structures. It was, it was yeah. It's like a, like a, a mist of war. You know, your fog of war, if you like, yeah. it used loosely. Uh, when there's more, you explore, and then once you've explored for like an, a, a, a six months, and you can look back to where you started and go, oh, I'm actually doing that wrong now. You know, I know now that that was wrong. Mm-hmm. And then it's it just making those steps and as I'm learning, because I didn't have a teacher. I learned by myself, by ear. And I, we, you know, we had these little the, the books. Uh, if I can get hold of a tablature book, I'd, I'd have one. You know, tablatures of uh, the Led Zeppelin tunes, um, and uh, Jimi Hendrix one was probably a bit, bit, bit harder. That people weren't. I don't think people were up a lot of tabs for uh, Jimi Hendrix at the time. Yeah, um, I couldn't find any. I mean, pretty. Uh, the shops were pretty lean in in Norfolk at the time. Um, but yeah, it was. Uh, it was hard to understand, get your head around um, uh, the, the the sounds, also the the pulling, the the feeling of it. But avidly, I would be going through it. I mean, you know, listening at night, I'd be like falling asleep with uh, Pink Floyd going on, um, and just like tracing the notes uh, of what like, how uh, Dave Gilmore would play to Ellis solos. I'd be tracing it with my eyes, going up and down like this, <laughs> sort of drifting off to sleep or school next morning. And um, yeah. so, yeah, it just took me, and it took me away from the the family at the time, which was broken, you know. 
Yeah. And all the parents, you know, my mum gone living down the road. It was stressful time, obviously. It wasn't stressful, but I did remember running away from home. Uh, you know, so like two two miles away where my mum was, but it was a big, you know, big busy road, the A40, mm-hmm. uh, which was an underpass then, but to traverse uh, across to to find. But the last place I visited, me and my bar, you know, we'd go there. Um, but so it was a it was a release, you know, to get away from 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 um, you know, yeah, it's, some sort of escape by that. Yeah, yeah, it was, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's what drove my, my brothers crazy as I'm going through learning <laughs> to heaven solo um, over and over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> this is like, you know, I apologise to them for this. <laughs> and then um, how, how did it progress then? When did you start uh, playing in bands and stuff like that? When I said, well, probably about 18, 19 I thought I was ready. So when I've done about four, four or five years of learning, and I thought I'd put, I'm good enough, I think, to go into a band now. I've obviously mm-hmm. got a better guitar as well. Um, I've no idea where those guitars have gone since. So, uh, but yeah, I, I did the, my first off was, uh, audition was somewhere down in, in Hounslow. Yeah, it might have been Hounslow, but uh, it was for a sort of PIL, Public Image Limited type band. Right, really me, you know, coming from a rock, rockier background, and they just wanted pure sort of punky thing. And the first time I'd have probably even heard of uh, Pill, I didn't fit the bill, I didn't get that one. But um, about a year later, um, I was living then in um, Hulls near Hulsden, Neesden, Neesden, with my Irish girlfriend, and uh, answered the an ad in the loot, and this is I remember my second audition, and this is the one where I met met the boys. Right. Um, yeah, uh, it was an advert in the loot. I'm down to Hounslow. Yeah, we need a guitarist in the type of say, you know, uh, Townsend Hendrix, Page, that sort of ilk, you know, mm-hmm. that, that sort of thing I'm looking for at the time. And um, yeah, I I turned up. Um, they'd seen about fifty other guitarists before me. Yeah, so they were, you know, it, it was a it was a popular ad, obviously. So, or, or they, and the fact they didn't find anyone. Um, yeah, well, I, s- I, I seen that they they had a boy in Australia. Was it an Australian boy? And then um, we left to join Jesus in the Mary chain after a That's week. Right, yeah, there was something early before I came along. So I'm a bit vague on the story, but there was some connection with some guy that was with with them and didn't last that long. It wasn't in. It wasn't. Yeah. weren't jelly, really. Yeah. yeah. Initially, uh, the band was called Purple. Is that right? Yeah, the band, well, the, the, the outfit that um, Nigel and Matthew came down from Birmingham was was a band called Purple. Um, they had a friend of theirs, Dave Griffiths, was a guitarist with them, I think, again, from, from Birmingham area. And uh, then they had a, uh, um, what's his name? It was a guy, the bass player, who was just really into Red Hot Chili Peppers. We got chili, you know, and um, I can't remember his name now. It was a French guy, but he was a really, really busy bass player, and he just filled every space with notes and notes and notes. And I didn't mm. think the guys really liked that sort of thing. So with that, and um, and uh, and and David Griffiths not really liking the direction the band was going in and things like that. I think Nigel and Matthew had chats with each other, and you know, it was left up to one of them to get rid of them. Right. You know? 
yeah, to call his mate and say, look, you're not you're not in the band and we don't want you to be in the band anymore. It's just negative energy you've got all the time and they want yeah. something to go in the right direction for them. And that's obviously really hard. I can't remember who it was that did the uh, the dumping, but he still he still was a friend afterwards, Dave David was. Yeah. Um, so we still know him, but the, the uh oh god, the French bass player's name the name's gonna bug me. But he I think he decided to leave and it was um that was a relief to the to the boys mm-hmm. as well. So it was down to two of them then and then Nigel decided oh, he's gonna take up the bass. Matt's always here on the drums, we need a guitarist. And uh yeah, there was it went about through fifty of them. There was like guys turning up. And then one of them was about a fifty year old, say about my age, turning up at the door for a band in their like their twenties, early twenties. Yeah. I'll come for the um come for the uh I'll come for the guitar audition. And uh, I think Matthew at the door, and he went, "No, you haven't." And just closed the door. <laughs> <laughs> they don't enough by that point. They don't enough. Yeah. And, uh, and then I turned up. I came up with a lumberjack uh, shirt on. They had a lumberjack. One of lumberjack shirt on. He played a song. I had one of my song ideas, which really similar to one of their uh, ideas. And then I just doing. I just kept doing some feedback notes that just went on forever. And mm-hmm. uh, they were like. Uh, in what? What is this? They're looking at each other. That's how they retell the story. I'm only, um, yeah, paraphrasing them. Mm. But yeah, it's been a long journey. Yeah. So you obviously you sort of share my flat in Hounslow. Yeah, in yeah. Hounslow. Which obviously I, I kind of I, I got the gist of that story from my previous guest Mark Morris, who then. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if there was some sort of crossover, whether these were all staying in the house at some point and then they took it over. Um, but he say, he said at the, at the time it was the messiest house in the street and that's that's what attracted him to come to see you. It's funny you say that because uh, Mark is like the tidiest person I've ever known. <laughs> <laughs> it's the guy that cuts his own roaches with the, with the scissors. The scissors mm-hmm. and all his equipment for rolling a joint are in a in a in a, in a little box, you know, box with a lid. Everything's sorted out. Even his wrists are cut to the specific level. And and when he comes on the tour bus, he'll 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 be cleaning the tour bus before the the driver has done it. You know, he goes to hotels. He'll be cleaning the hotels rather than throwing the TV out the window. <laughs> it's it's funny you should say that about the the joints, because uh, when I had him on the podcast, obviously two or three weeks ago, um, and during the podcast, he, he must have rolled three or four joints during the duration of the the podcast. It was brilliant. It was neither up nor down for smoking these smoking big yeah. things, um, but oh, it was that brilliant. Was, uh huh. In the morning, was that? In the afternoon, I ran about the same time as yourself. Fair enough, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. So, I, so obviously, staying in that house, uh, you said like a, a little rehearsal space and all that. So, right. Yeah, we had a little rehearsal space in the back. We had, um, we had this garage, basically, which we converted, well, loosely, the word converted. We had pallets, you know, and we'd wrap them, uh, in carpets, nail carpets, and but rolled up copies of carpets in the in the in the voids in between, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we'd fill it up like that, stack it up against the wall, and pin them up against the wall, and then carpet it again, and then had this like 
huge, this huge flipping door that had no hinges. It was just lent on the opening, <laughs> and it was the way of half a ton. And uh, you know, pushing it in, and this is where I had the audition as well. And we continued to to rehearse every day when we were at home. You know, we were just like drawing dull, and then just in there every day. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a it was a pretty heavy door which did fall down on Nigel at one point. Um, we thought we'd lost him, you know, flat. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was a nice little garage, and um, and uh, you know, yeah, it was inherited by 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 the Blue Tones, as you say. You know, it was a merge. We didn't live two bands together. I think one at a time, one moved out, one came in. Right. Started, I was the one left. Uh, the, the last one there, really, in the attic. Um. When the boys pretty much had all moved in, Blue Tones had. Uh, it would take a week or two, you know. I didn't stay there long. I went and moved off up to like Finsley Park after that. But um, yeah, it was uh, it was great to see Mark coming round and and then you know taking an interest in us. I mean, he really did just live around the corner. But I, we'd met him um, at the High Highgate uh, Highgate the Railway uh, Tavern. I think it was the the place mm-hmm. in Highgate. Um, it's uh, it's a gig right by the station. The Who played there many years before. It was still going then at the start of this time. I don't think it is anymore as a, as a venue. But um, I met him in the audience after our gig. We played there at about uh, not early 91, I suppose. Yeah, late 1990. Right. And, um, and we just remained, just found, he lived around the corner, so we invited him around. And that's where it all sort of started, really, yeah. Um, get, yeah our friendship began, you know. Yeah, um, it, it, it's... Refreshing to see that as well, to see kind of, obviously these are all pretty close still all these years down the line. It's it's nice yeah. to see that, that sort of relationship. Mm. Uh, what was, you touched on kind of gigging in, in brief detail there, so what was gigging like in your, your area at that time? i seen somewhere that you, you were playing like fortnightly gigs in, in a pub. And a wine bar, was it? Yeah, wine bar it was. Um, again, walking downstairs underneath uh, a bank or something it was. Um, it was open up in the evening. Um, it was downstairs in the basement. And um, we were basically looking around for residency because we caught on a story that the Rolling Stones used to do that. We would be around this the mm-hmm. area house where it's really close to Kingston and, 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 and Richmond just down the road, you know. So I thought, oh, you know, well, in Twickenham, I think uh, Rolling Stones had a, a a venue of their own. They could put on, they could play regularly. And say, I think it was in Twickenham where their venue was. Well, anyway, it was like um, it influenced us into getting our own sort of things started. I've got a big bloody good idea. Every two weeks we can play. We've got a guaranteed fucking gig. Yeah, and um, we'll we'll start a club and uh, you know like uh, Matthew and Nice. They love the records and they love to play and they'll play the, the DJ decks and they'll get friends down from Birmingham. That started kipping on the couch, and they played the, the the decks as well, and it became the dodgy club as, as well as then the band would play, you know. And we go down, we'd go to the um, uh, the 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 lights effects um shop and hire some um, you know, psychedelic disc um, uh, you know, projector things, you know. Uh huh. We get loads of you know sheets, bed sheets, and you know, psychedelic sheets, and start hanging up on the wall and. Just really decorating the place for the evening. Get there quite early and start decorating and set up and everything. And this is there was no stage, it's just a fucking thing in the corner. All the tables, it's a cocktail bar basically. So all the tables were moved out. 
we done a deal with the owner. I said, look, you know, you take the stuff on the on the on the bar. We'll make sure people turn up, and we'll take the stuff on the on the door. And he was mm-hmm. happy with that. And when we go down to Flyard, it was really a good central place because you had Kingston College, Twickenham College, and Richmond College all oh, really close vicinity. So we just walked into those colleges and and put our flyer up on their on their board. Um, and it just started to grow and grow and grow, you know. It became a real popular night and event, you know. And it's still going today. Still, it's still happening today now as a venue. Right. People going through that. So, yeah. It's something it's you don't you don't hear a lot of nowadays is is bands no. getting a residency. That I had a, a guest on Jack Jones for trampoline, and I think they had a resi- residency for a while in uh, Coco in London. But other than that. It's it's not something that you hear of a great deal, but as you say, it's it's ideal for you know that you get gigs whenever you want, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a good idea for you when you start up your managing career. Yeah, look out for a venue, nightly venue. I mean, I think inevitably managers tend to become promoters as well, or parts of bands become promoters because they know how to do it, you know, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. But um. Yeah, it's, uh, it's something that it could still happen. I mean, apart, apart from the fact that you know, venues are closing at an incredible rate um, yeah. over, over these years now since COVID, um, uh, music venue trusts are doing their best to save them and uh, and, and keep the dialogue going. And um, so, but uh, but there's there's you know there's always opportunities are going to come up out of these. Uh, yeah, the ashes of some of these venues and and opportunities for for bands to to do it themselves, really. Yeah, so I, I mean, very I've... attractive for um very attractive for people who wanted to work with us as metal companies because we were quite low maintenance. You know, we we were doing it ourselves. Yeah, I think I think that's where it, it's headed again now is the kind of DIY element of it is that that that's a model that people are are starting to use again. There's yeah, no, yeah. there's no the same amount of record contracts getting handed out as there was in the kind of nineties yeah. and early noughties. It's kind of that's all died away. So you need to do it yourself. He is, yeah, yeah. You have to get out there and start meet people, and by meeting those people, we'll get those contacts going, and you get into the stream of their contacts as well. And it, yeah, and you're on the right track. Um, which, uh, I mean, there used to be scenes, didn't there? It's the yeah. scenes, the Manchester scene, the Coventry scene, or whatever. You know, the London scene obviously is still there, but it, it's still fragmented. I, I, there wasn't, there wasn't this binding thing like the enemy used to be quite a well-read paper. You know, where you could really engage in what was going on mm-hmm. on, on the ground. You know, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm now of a different generation. Now. I just, uh, I don't know where those streams are, where those. Uh, where people can meet and you know, so they say TikTok's a really big thing now, and 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 yeah. uh, you know, the short five second bursts and things like that, which bands do. And yeah, the Arctic Monkeys have been the first ones to come out and say MySpace and things like that, wasn't it? Yeah, and, um, I mean, it, know, it has got to the point I, I, I'm pretty savvy on most social media, but I, I mean, the, the TikTok thing, I kind of get my head around that. I, I've, no. I think I've just massed the, massed the boat on that. I'm far too old for that. Yeah, yeah, but it's also like a big wormhole you're going yeah. down. I mean, it's, um, 
it, to be a viewer on it, it's it's just crazy. You know, your your day's gone and you realise you've just <laughs> yeah. wasted an hour yeah. or something, you know, drawn into it. But to create things like that, I just don't have that drive, you know, putting up. I mean, I do my art, you see. I do my art. I see yeah. you as a medium, a very strong medium for artists. You mm-hmm. do a quick and look down on a progress, a quick progress of how I'm doing a drawing, you know. Um, yeah. So, 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 yeah. I mean, Nigel could probably do a bit more TikTok, but then it doesn't appeal to that gen- our generation. You see, our, our fans don't use TikTok. So. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, it, it, it's it's not something I've ever I've never even downloaded it. My yeah. wee boy, my wee boy. Well, I say my wee boy. He turns sixteen in two days. And he's and I kind of think, well, I'm, I'm um, twenty five years older than him, so I really shouldn't be getting near it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, yeah. so like going back to these, uh, these gigs in the wine bar. After after eight months of playing these gigs, he's had a record deal, so you yeah. must have been doing something right there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the record company just come down, and well, the people were interested. It was sort of, um, creating a uh, a buzz around us, and um, we'd also got uh, by that point we we were talking talking talk to Andy Winters, our our manager that went on to manage us through the the, the early dodgy years and uh, mm-hmm. the three piece three albums and the years with A and M. He 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 guided us through there, but I believe he was with us then, and he got the he started getting the um word around with people to come down and check out this band, and he's enthused by it. He's got great. You know, knows how to speak, knows how to talk, and um, we, I, I think it was Matthew that popped a tape, cassette tape, in a, in his pocket, uh, in town once. Yeah, going, I'm watching some bad, and I chat with him, sneaked a tape into his pocket, and that he's next morning, he's like, what, what is this? And I remember getting this. He put it on. It's a fucking phone number on there. He liked what he heard. He called us up and says, you know, I'm interested, and um, he got us onto the Gary Crowley the. Hitch, uh, the next show of the week, uh, some sort of phone-in favourite song of the week, Gary Clarley. Um, can't remember the name of the show, but uh, we we won it for like three weeks, or four weeks in a row, um, which got us a great bit of uh, attention. But then they started to come down to the to the dodgy club, and um, you know we we charged them on the door. Uh, we didn't give any students concessions or anything like that. There was no guest list. Crying out loud, you know, we've got to get our money in, and we be fine. We might we'll charge them a tenner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a tenner <laughs> so, so they all came down, and um, uh, yeah, I suppose because they was full, and it's a nice little tight place because it's full, and they see the kids just like going nuts for it. That that uh, that's the most impressive thing. That's that's what guides them. And, you know, more whether they like the songs or not, they might like a couple of tunes, but there's something about this band, and you're like, because you've got fucking kids in here, you know. Yeah. So I sell to those kids. So, so um, to, through, through that, yeah, it came through to we were suddenly talking to all these, uh, like, Island, A&M, Python. We just went talking to all these bloody uh, record companies. Um, uh, what's it? Um, we want the one with Chesney Hawks is on. Virgin and etc. So yeah, we were very popular. Um, we wanted to get into the US and we signed one. So it came down to like Island or A uh-huh. and M, um, and uh, you know it was very close. And we ended up with uh, with A and M because they because they had their solid company over in in um, 
in America. Um, mm. uh, but it didn't really work, turn out like that. We never really got to do America. But I'm going a bit too far ahead. I digress. Yeah, yeah. So but, obviously going to A&M because, again, the, the, the Blue Tones ended up signing for A&M. And, and Mark's kind of reasoning behind that was that they were able to have more control of their, their product. So was that kind of, did that have a, was that part of your thought process as well? We, um, we joined A&M because, yes, we felt like we had a bit more freedom. They let us, there was a time, um, the the atmosphere at the time of the music industry record companies was um just sign them and let them de- develop and uh uh-huh. we, we with a with A&M and left us to our own devices. They would send someone down, some young A and R guy to come and check up on us. Which would make Matthew really nervous. It'd always make him really nervous. So he's like jumping around going Make sure you got this, do this, do this, do this. Make sure you know, talk about this and like that. You know, like <laughs> making us nervous. Just calm down, calm down. <laughs> so you know, let's cut the folks here. Just beef him up, beef him, butter him up, butter him up, and and didn't realise he's been overheard and the guy could hear him. You know, so like, oh, it's oh my god. Anyway, you know, so they they come down. Yeah, we a good love. Howard Burnham was the guy's name, the MD, and um. He, we would sign to him. We wanted him to be our A and R guy. He was the AMD. He was the managing director. So we wanted him to be our A and R guy. We didn't want the head of A and R to be our A and R or anyone on the A and R team to be our A and R. We wanted security, but this guy is ours. And so when he agreed that, um, well, on the face of it, it probably looked like that. He, he yeah, of course I'll be your A and R guy. Just sign the damn bloody contract. <laughs> <laughs> and then we got pushed on to the A and R people. Be like you know, but um, so it was. It, we just immediately felt like it was a family there as well. They really got on well with us. We go around to the company in, in um, in in Fulham and um, walk around the offices, and you know, we we're looking forward to it because we want to see the secretaries as well, all the ladies and the other people that worked <laughs> in the departments, you know. <laughs> and they were looking forward to seeing us as well. <laughs> so, didn't care about the blokes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So is it the is it the record label then that put you on Ian Brody for the to produce the first album? Uh, yeah, well, it's that and um, you know, Matthew and Nigel, they, they um, um, you know, they kind of know what they want as well, um, and they'd known of uh, of of uh, Ian Brody for quite a while, and um, these lightning seeds that seemed quite similar to our to our sound, you know. Mm-hmm. So we got him a. a Got him along for the first album. It was going up to Liverpool and um, recording with him, and, and just in you know, our first time in a big studio, and we'd been doing our B sides in these little cramped places uh, around London, uh, which were fine and great, uh, great um, atmospheres. And but now we're in a big studio, Park Street in Liverpool, with um, with Ian Brody, and he knows how to use that desk, and he knows how to do do the shit, you know, and um, and 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 uh, the. the you know, I think our first time of sort of pre pre production that we would go through with him. I mean, there's not a lot of pre production with with Brody. More so later on with uh, uh, Hugh Jones. What I mean by that is by looking at the songs and really rearranging them. Like you've got this part here, and it's getting a bit repetitive now. You're going back into a standard a verse bridge chorus, then you do mm-hmm. another verse bridge chorus, 
then you do a little middle eight, and it's all predictable, I say, you know. But then we get Judy comes along, they start going, you could use this half that one there, turn that around there, switch that, da, 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 and it's like, oh, fucking hell, yeah, I didn't see that before, and it's all becomes um more longevity added to it because you know yeah. It's just lost by so quickly a four-minute song because you probably change these things around. But that's what uh, Ian Brodie uh, and and Hugh Jones would bring to the table. Um, and that's as a thing. Yeah, I mean, you look at Ian Brodie. Ian Brodie's still doing it now. Still yeah, producing yeah. all these records for a lot of up-and-coming bands now. And Andy's still going out and performing as well. Yeah, yeah. So Yeah, he's... Uh, you know, but they loved their music. I mean, he was, um, is a great influence on us, and um, and uh, you know, me as well. My guitar parts, Ian would help me with those. He's got mm-hmm. great guitar soloists as well. Um, so I was showing quite a bit, a few bits on there. Uh, so yeah, a great relationship that was born out of it. Um, and with the love of Liverpudlian people up there when we were staying up there for quite a long period of time. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, Ian Brody produced the second album as well, Homegrown, which was only a year after the first one. Um, he, had on well, it. he did half of Homegrown. He did half of, a little bit half of Yeah, Brody's well, half having, having Hugh, Hugh Jones as well, so Hugh Jones came in then as well. Right, yeah. I mean, um, Brody was on the Dodgy album, the first album, uh, and uh, yeah, the second album was started with, 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 with Ian, Um but we felt like we wanted a different approach. Um, I think maybe Nigel was seeing it the way it was going was with the right way. Um, there was, uh, you know, songs like uh, Grassman uh, that we were playing around with on demos and stuff. We couldn't put it on the, the first album, I believe. Um, it was either Hugh or Ian said, you're not good enough yet to, 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 to master that song, to get that done yet, you know. Right. You need to leave it for a little while. We've developed as a band, which you tend to do when you sort of listen to click tracks, and uh, you know, eventually you get used to the click tracks. You don't need click tracks anymore. Your drummer's just on it. He's just kept it straight. You know, no rushing and flowing down that sort of stuff. And and but with uh, you know songs like that uh, with with Grassman, you wanted it to speed up and slow down naturally. You know, a lot of right. those old tunes did that. You know, Hendrix would speed. Had little slower bits and split up and slowed, and you know it sounded completely differently. Different now, if you'd had technology to straighten it out to make it, you know, robot-like, you know, it would just mm-hmm. sound completely different. The feel is there when it comes down. But yeah, lots of lots of things learned, you know. On, so was that kind of was was there a kind of thinking behind that he's you were maybe starting to sound similar to Lightning Seeds, and you kind of wanted to. Yeah, I think so. I think so. We wanted a bit more of a harder edge. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, through some, you know, there was Juice's names, Lecky was going thrown around. Um, it's the older Stone Roses uh, producers who wanted to get some of that. We uh-huh. worked a bit with Paul, Paul Schroeder, who's engineered on some of those early, early Stones, uh, um, Stone Roses records. Um, and uh, but we 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 came upon uh, Hugh Jones. Just seemed like when we met him, just like we got on really really well. Very calming um, persona. Very calming is what you what you would want, you know. And and really good at just cutting out the crap, you know. 
um, and 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 um, and being the uh, the catalyst in the in the centre, the one that could just like you know, if we if I couldn't get an idea across to Nigel or Matthew or Matthew could do that. You know, there's there's a there's a certain way of doing it without offending someone. Yeah, like he would do it really really easy. He just get the job done. This is what sounds good. We we go we then put our ideas into this guy, and then he makes them sound good. Or he goes, "Yes, that we have a bit of that, have a bit of that. We could do this." And uh, yeah, which it's probably easier to take that criticism yeah. off the producer than it is after your your fellow bandmates, isn't it? Yeah. It's, yeah. So I mean, on that album, you had um, staying out for the summer. Yeah. Which is like the first kind of massive. Dodgy song. Um, yeah. it, it got to number 38 in the charts and then the remix came out, it got to number 19. Which That's right. You know better than me. I, just, I can't remember the bloody end. Well, just when I was checking it out, because it, it is a massive song, and like once I've seen where it got to the charts, where it charted, I was surprised because it's, it's, I, I would expected it to be top top 10, if not top 5. Um, it's it's one of these songs that you mention it to somebody and they'll know it straight away. Yeah, yeah. It's got played a lot. When you come up with like, a song like that, what does, what's the thinking then? Do you kind of think, like, this is us, we've struck gold with us? Well, sort of. I mean, you know, we do as much as to put in our five bits when you're a musician in a band you want to enjoy playing a song so you know you've got something in there when you're playing it live you don't want to look like you're really bored you know mm-hmm. bored to, you know like you know every song we're always trying to put everything into it we believe every one of those was a single so it's, it's hard to see one that really popped out as a single yeah you get the, the company other people on the outside of the band uh, that are saying this one, this one. You tend to believe in them to to to, to that extent, you know. Um, we're staying up for summer. You know, it's not like you know we're going. This is a fucking banger. This is definitely going to be right up there. And um, I was thinking we knew the uh, the landscape well enough to know that, that would be a hit. You know, it's another thing. But um, we maybe didn't do a lot of other factors that. Uh, that were, were at play, maybe, you know, that people weren't getting us, weren't coming across in interviews maybe as much, as well as we'd liked. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of that. Part of a scene, a cool scene, a niche scene, a part of where um, you'd have uh, a bunch of friends in your school and um, there's one, that, the cool guy, that's just always in, he's got the right sort of music. Maybe mm-hmm. we didn't really engage with them well enough and uh, you know, it didn't filter through to everyone else, you know. I just went over their heads, or maybe it was just a name. The name says, you know, you get my like, arm oh, into a dodgy fan. Oh, you, you're dodgy, are you? You know, and it was just it was a turn on this <laughs> tape and the, you know, you Barris and you know, it's 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 funny you mention that, like the name, because obviously, no, not so much yourself, but there's there've been so many bands that I've kind of no gave the time of day because of their name, and then it's like yeah. a couple of albums in. That I go and listen to them, and I think no, they're they're decent. I mean, yeah. the Arctic Monkeys was probably the first one. I, I was in the interested. I thought it was a stupid name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And look where they are now. Um, Catfish in the Bottleman, the same sort of thing with them. And yeah. recently, a Scottish band, the Snuts, who I just I went to see at the weekend. They played two massive shows in Glasgow. Yeah, 
Um, but again, I never got into them at the start just because of the name. So it, yeah. it just shows you some people can be... It's not even mm. turned off. I, I just never gave gave the bands the time at the start just mm. because of the name. Yeah, it could be such the smallest little thing, you know. Sometimes I thought that maybe we're going to run into that a bit too quickly, choosing our name, but but it's the name that just, you know, pops up and you never forget. I mean, um, and so, but, yeah, if it's been something else chosen from inside a novel, um, mm. uh, you know, some, like I said, Joy's Division uh, name picked out of some thought process. But we were high on acid. <laughs> so we, we... The thing um, is, I mean, the, the name... Dodgy for me are synonymous with a certain time period, so I'll always remember these for that. So yeah. it, it it goes, it can go two ways. Yeah, yeah, it can go two ways. Yeah. Uh, next album was Three Piece Sweet, which is probably where I kind of came into these. That that's where I kind of discovered these yeah. properly. But yeah. I, I mean, around about this time, you were doing a lot of. Um, political work as well, kind of supporting the Dockers, playing yeah. um, in Sarajevo, stuff like yeah. that. So was that kind of, was that present in your mind that you had to have, you, you had to support these causes, you had to yeah. support your beliefs? Absolutely. No, it just turns out, that, I mean, you know, I joined the band, I was, um, you know, my dad's and, and, and it's always been Labour voter. I grew up being a Labour voter and that sort of thing. Physical. Nigel, more, more, more so, I think, uh, with his songs and using it as a vehicle, he's, um, you know, he's heavily into his punk and the uh, uh, class, mm-hmm. um, things like that. So he's, he's quite, you know, he's a, a militant in a, in a sense, you know. He's got a bit softer in these later days, but he's still there. You know, he's, he does speak up for everyone when he's, uh, you know, yeah, up there um, talking to the crowd in that uh, festivals, you know, festivals a bit hit and miss. You always get your own fans there, but it will still say he's, you know, call to arms and everything. You know, it's all get together and, and keep ourselves together. We're better than them, that sort of thing. It always has been a strong um, vein of uh, political view, uh, um, political agenda going through the band, um, and and it was very uh, strong and appealing to us. Help the the, the, the Dockers in Liverpool. We spent a lot of time doing our first album up there. We felt like they were our second, it's our second home. Um, yeah. So we were, we were very much into helping them, you know. I, f- I think it has, stuff like that is appreciated by these people uh, mm. that that somebody like yourselves is able to use your platform to kind of raise awareness of what's going on. It's, yeah, it's yeah. something that's music's always done like if you yeah. think about the Paul Weller and like the Red Wedge movement but it sets like, a divide between mainstream music uh-huh. and alternative music alternative music is that platform it's that platform to get together and have a meeting you know mm-hmm. talk about issues which are massively important to people and it's not just a band jumping on a bandwagon it's just you actually believe it it's just like it's it's a, it's a vehicle to get to, to get people together right? Thing in the same mind, but not ex- totally exclusive, you see. You know, it's yeah. to the opening of the, the debate, you know. Yeah, so, um, 
I mean, even as as I mentioned earlier about going to see the Snuts at the weekend, obviously they a big massive open open air show in Glasgow, like their hometown, and they projected a big screen at the back and said, "People make Glasgow refugees welcome," and yeah, things like yeah. that, such a statement like that, and yeah. it resonates so much with the crowd because it is. I mean, like Glasgow, Liverpool, Manchester, all these places are really. For all there's poverty and whatever going on in the city, the, the people in these places are really caring, and I think the, yeah. the music connects them with that sort of that sort of thing. I mean, yeah. again, it it transmit a couple of a couple of weeks ago, a wee boy Declan Welsh, Declan Welsh in the decadent West. He's he used up about five minutes. He's set um, doing a speech about the the people of Palestine. And that's, as you say, it's brilliant doing it at a festival because you're touching, you're not just touching your own fans, you're, you're reaching out to other people and getting yeah. there. So, I I mean, it's still it's still really strong now. So, mm. what's it like then, going out and playing in Sarajevo at that time? What was it like? Um, it was an eye-opener, massive eye-opener. I've never been to a, you know, uh, a country. It's so beautiful, the country is. And uh, mm. but then you go to the, to the cities and towns, never seen the aftermath of fresh war, like the fresh wounds on a building, um, torn up, seeing the the the, 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 iron, the steel spikes poking out of the sort of the house, blown off. You know, seeing the most photographed bus uh, in 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 the world at the time. It was this bus riddled with bullets. It's like a, some sort of school bus or something. Yeah. Riddled with bullets thrown out, you know, on the front line of this um this street in in Mostar, I believe it was. And um yeah, the brutal the Mostar Bridge as well, and that's been put back together again. That quite a six hundred year old thousand year old bridge or something it was that was blown up and just meeting those people there as well from both sides of it you know like saying that there were the muslims and um and the croatians the suburbs uh serbians were um previously friends before and suddenly fighting against each other yeah uh, and that's the thing i mean i mean a lot of them don't even really know why it's happening it's just kind of it just feels natural that they need to be against a certain yeah. There's cleansing going on there and um, dark money involved and mm. far-reaching fingers from, from you know, uh, some, some nations that are um, trying to wave the flag of peace and, you know, the, the like, you know, the American hegemony. Yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Dark money going in everywhere and I, I you know, the fights between the big two big major powers erupting out of Serbia and Croatia, you know, yeah, that, that sort of, goes but, on. That, but that's is that ultimately at, at the end of the day it comes down to money, doesn't it? There's really when these yeah. countries get involved, there, there's a reason why they're getting involved mm-hmm. it's because they care about the people, because it's yeah, yeah, yeah. you can get at the end of the day, yeah, it is. It's a big money, it's supposed to be a perpetual war. I mean. Perpetual war of the money making, and uh, uh, they don't want no, there's no, there's no, no peace, you know. Um, it's all orchest- orchestrated in, in back rooms and everything, you know. Look, you have a Murdoch, Murdochs, and everything, you know. 
it's pretty depressing and there has to be an antidote to it and music is and uh, mm-hmm. music and, and bands and people speaking and talking is the antidote getting informed being informed yeah is, is stop it the only way to stop it you know so yeah. protest and shit, you know. Well, that's it, and as I say, it's it's still going on now, and it'll it'll still be going on, um, long after me and you are gone. There's still going to be these yeah. protests. Going back to the album, then three piece yeah. week came out nineteen ninety six. That probably the perfect time, um, for for British music, and I can remember sitting in my room, um, with one of my pals at the time playing playing FIFA or something like that. And I had this album on. Um, and my pal's like, what the fuck is that? Because it was just so different, man. It, it just... I don't think it was different. I think it was just guitar music. It was the sort of music I listened to. But when he said that, yeah. it's that you're listening to. I think that's when yeah. I realised that the music I listened to was different for the, the mainstream. Yeah. Um, but... It's the sort of album that you can you, you you put that on, you just play it right through, and it kind of takes you away in a, a, a journey. So many good songs on it. Um, there's like four brilliant singles. So, yeah. how did that that to me is like the, the pinnacle of dodgy? Yeah, um, yeah. me how too. Did, how how did the recording of that go? And, and what's the kind of what I've no asked through any of the other albums, what 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 is the sort of writing process for these? Well the um there was always uh, like hundreds of songs Nigel used to be having around, you know, on tapes strewn mm-hmm. across the floor. And and it was whittled down into a uh, a uh, probably then to about twenty five songs and then whittled down again as you could go through them. It's a lot of work really going through each song you're gonna go through this one today, we're gonna to try and find some ideas for that one, ideas for this one. You need a fucking verse for this one. Might need, uh, you know, there's something missing. There's still something needs on that one. Whether it comes about or not, or it just goes down straight to B-side, uh-huh. never finding that new bit. That's what sort of happens. You've got other songs coming in all the time. And ones that pop up at the front of the queue, you know, queue jumping, going, what the fuck <laughs> did that one come for? You know, that's definitely in. And uh, um, and then uh, and then basically you got those songs concise, and then as I said earlier, with with um, with uh, Hugh Jones. Now we're 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 in a great relationship with him. I've done the previous album, but we know what he's like. We're comfortable with him, and so he's um, yeah. we go into pre-production, and this is like whittling it whole, all the way down to it's just the bass drum and the bass. That's all that's going on right now. <laughs> like, you know, so we've got a sort of rough arrangement going on. That's um, it's about what the fuck is happening with the bass and the fucking bass drum, and it, it really was back down. So then we start adding things and adding more, and and that's the way we'd build up a song. Then now you know uh-huh. we'd never done that before. We just jam, 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 jam. But we're listening to these under uh, tones of um, what what's matching. You know, I mean, generally your guitar is going to be hitting with the snares and the hi hats. You know. And your bass drum is going with the toms and the bass, you know, uh, sort of bass toms, toms and bass drum with the bass. Um, and uh, and and also then marrying together with the melody, they want to be snapping in. Everything is the is the DNA is the melody, 
And so it started coming to us like that, you know, epiphanies uh, uh, like this. So, um, yeah, no, so the production was just an eye-opener, and then uh, we've just suddenly got this uh, new song that's come out of uh, the old song. It's been twisted so much, and it's so interesting now. It's just boring, okay. for one thing. Um, it's like it became, in, it became very interesting. And so, it, and then the ideas started popping out as well. Other ideas uh, uh, started to be created. And um, so, yeah, very meticulous at the start. And then, and then recording wise, it's, that's that's Hugh Jones's area. Um, we were getting, you know, nice studios, putting this studio there. Now we're going to um, Wessex, we're going up to Rockfield, um, where we're in battery studios. Um, in in holes, and I don't think that's any there anymore. They could have three or four studios, Olympic, Olympia, maybe up there as well. There was all these, you know, we were in a lot of great studios. Couldn't do that nowadays, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, no budget to do it, but um, uh, yeah, there's that's just. Well, what's the reason for the different studios? Is it just is it just certain studios you're able to get? Different sounds that you couldn't get elsewhere. Well, yeah, I mean, there was a great, there was a great reverb chamber in uh, Rockfield Studios, right? With the old um, uh, horse um, stables, mm-hmm. and each one of them had a different um, plates, different uh, reverb sound that they've channeled their lines into, which goes back into the studio, right? So it's doing out into the uh, stables and then back again onto the onto the record. Or your guitar or your vocal thing, more natural and organic sounds you get from those studios. Yeah, and and it was down to the desks as well. Not a huge Jones would be really, you know, he wanted to use um Neves desks. Well, there's a lot of Neves were being used back in them days. You know, automated faders. You know, they're all going up by themselves, coming down, um, going up. You know, like a fucking spaceship. The fucking thing was, you know, um, and so uh. So, but yeah, it was more to do with the desks being used and their setup, which Hugh Jones chose. To be honest with you, he's the one to ask about that. Right. Uh, it was really interesting when you when you hear these like bands, even even now, when they when they choose a, a certain studio, and, and it's always something that I've wondered is what what the difference is between studios. So all of these are get yeah. different sounds, and then. Depending on what producer you combine that with as well can make a different sound again, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. We would I remember always Matthew asking is it, you know, what's the drum sound like? What's the hall like? What's the big hall sound like, you know? Because mm-hmm. we'd want to put the drums in that big hall and mic it up like that, you know. And putting, you know, but then, you know, once you got that, he started stacking, making his bump bass drum look like a flipping flipping tube train. A big tunnel coming out of it and putting a mic at the end. Um, it was closed off like that, extended longer. Right. And uh, put a mic at the end. Obviously on the the outside, you know, not where he's not where his chair was, but where he's because he'd be six foot long sticks to hit me fucking with the drums. Yeah, like that's <laughs> the okay. grass video. Yeah, <laughs> next week, yeah. Um, yeah. Going the other way. We get, um, it was, there was, you know, for the drum sound as well. We don't mind so much about your guitar sounds because you can put it in the big hall or you can put it in the little, um, the little rooms, you know, all that, you know. I like, I like getting in there in the room when my guitar's being done. I like being, I don't like being in the studio 
next to the boys when they're all sitting around and doing it there. It's just really, really bloody awkward. Um, yeah. You know, in a zone, I hear the fucking thing, getting close and getting a bit of feedback and that. So, they're, they're, you know, she does it, yes, but it didn't really matter for me. I could just, you know, jump in any, any, uh, any room to do it. But um, the drum sounds and for desks, uh, uh, is the one of the main reasons why we change uh, the, the the studio. You know, so yeah. Mm. So as I said, obviously four singles off the album, but I mean, I look at that and you could there's. You could probably add another four into that that you could bring in as singles for that album. Uh, yeah. And then after that came, you brought it like ACs and Killer Bees. Uh, yeah, yeah. Was obviously at the start, I'd mentioned you'd signed, it was like a six album deal you'd signed. So yeah. at, at that point, was, was things going the other way and you were trying to yeah. kind of just string out another release to kind of. Get yeah, the... it was like that. There was no real recorded things on there apart from um, was it every, is it every single day? I think that was a uh, single that went on it. Um, it is uh, t- tagged on the end as a, an original. Some uh, uh, you know, uh-huh. poached from other records, previous records. So you know, it's kind of like killer bees, but just a B size, A sides, that sort of thing. With a with a with an original six, uh, single, I could be wrong. I mean, I probably am. I'm bloody wrong about a lot of things. In the past, and Matthew will probably correct me if he, he sees this interview. Um, but uh, it's uh, yeah, it, it wasn't a, a, a traditional record as in we record everything and uh, put out new songs. Yeah, it was just a we, the record company was was breaking up. Um, the the relationship between the MD and in the UK, Oslan, Oslap, uh, uh, Osmond Erlap. Uh, the MD. He was um, uh, some sort of family connection with the MD, or the part of a uh, A and M in America. Some sort of relationship was breaking down. They folded in the UK um, around the time when Nigel decided to leave the band. Yeah, Actually, you know, and I just thought we the band at that time when we we'd already signed a new uh, a deal to take on to the next step. You know. And then it, a week later, he said, uh, you know, we received money from that signing, re-signing. And then Nigel then said, I'm leaving the band. Sorry, I was going to tell you earlier. Yeah. Like, oh, no. You just led us into this huge, huge debt now. We've got to negotiations with the record company that we needed to do another single to appease them and bring something out before we'll wrap it up, you know. That's what happened, but so what was Nigel's reasons then for leaving the band? Was it to concentrate on family at the time? Yeah, he was starting a new family. Um, he needed advanced, advanced warning about where he was going and what we're doing. And well, yeah, my, my manager was like, Look, I'm gonna make you guys rich and famous or whatever. You, you you want this? You, we're going to cement your career or whatever. We don't care about the old rich or famous. That's all really just it's horror oh, of, of fame. It's uh, it's troublesome. It's it's just shocking what it is. Um, that um, you want this career to last, then this is what we're going to do. We'll get you established, a kitschy household name, you know. Um, so uh, but that's all he was committed to doing, our manager, and um. 
they didn't care about wives and girlfriends. They just yeah. want to get the fucking band done. That's it. And 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 in a sense that it was his downfall in a sense. He, he wasn't yeah, I mean, he's got so much, I suppose, so much, a lot of things, a lot on the job, you know, doing, doing, managing a band. Um, he doesn't have to want to extend these emotions to to people that he's not managing your fucking girlfriend. You manage your girlfriend, you manage your wife, I'll manage the band. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it, so there was things like that. Um, you know, a tour would come up, he didn't get enough notice. He just didn't like, wait, what, what was happening? He wanted a bit to take more control. Um, uh, of the band way way back then, and um, and yeah, I mean, I th- I just come out of a relationship, and um, I was broken, and he came round to talk about the band. He said, you know, it's good to have two two pains, um, to you know to get you know when you've got like a cut, but then you have another cut here. You don't you don't you know, notice so much that cut anymore, you know. It's get you know <laughs> so, that sort of psychology. He, he, you know, pin on me to say, look, can we leave and come with me, Andy? Uh, and Nigel would say, come with me and um, we'll get another manager. And, you know, well, you know, I was of the mind that I thought Andrew Winters was doing a bloody good job still. And mm-hmm. uh, Matthew would, he was very much with uh, Nigel, with, with um, Andrew as well. So Matthew and Nigel's relationship have kind of split a bit too far where they weren't talking Right. As much or as closely or as regularly as they were before, because now Nigel got, um, uh, you know, got getting married, got married, and then his, you know, little kid on the way, and you know, things were changing for him. Whereas me and Matthew were out there having a bloody good time, going yeah. out there, yeah, yeah, you know, we're going to every opening <laughs> of every tea bag that you that there was, you know. So, so yeah, obviously, you then carried on the band, you recruited. New people here recruited another three members. Yeah, yeah. And how did it? How did it feel? Um, that's different inclination of the band. Did it feel well, right? It, well, I mean, you know, for, for when Nigel left, I had a lot of songs that I wasn't getting into the band. I wasn't getting into to the dodgy uh, albums. You know, mm-hmm. my was Cold Tea that I managed to get onto the first album. Ever since then, it might have been uh, one of my songs would appear on a B side here and there. You know, I want to get a lot. But I had a lot there. I, mean, I wasn't having quite that. I wasn't getting anything. I mean, yeah, I was upset about it, but I was happy to carry on and the way it was with Nigel. But until then, and then you know, it came to spit up, and um, you know, I said, "Well, I've got loads of tunes." And then we had heard some a friend of ours that said, "There's this singer who's, who's got the most soulful, soulful voice." This, you know, get him in 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 there, and he's got loads of lovely songs, and so we. We, we we you know shared the, the song base uh, me and David Bassey, and um and it was uh it was a lot easier for us to move on quickly you know heart but heartbroken actually devastated to be honest with you when Nigel left because that's your dreams gone boom yeah everything's gone white now you know what's the future gonna hold I had a plan for that it's been blown out of the fucking water um. It often happens when you're leaving too many eggs in the basket with other people instead of your own, in a sense. But um, uh, so, you know, it wasn't too bad, but it was also just going to turn to Matthew. Look, Matthew, you know, it's not so bad. Look, we've got some songs. Just prove to him that we can do this by ourselves. Just prove to Nigel our worth, you know, mm-hmm. that he was wrong to do this, wrong to leave the band, you know. Um, And, and we carried on. Well, I think the only... The, 
the, the thing is, we should have changed, made another name, you know, not been Dodgy or Dodgy Mark II or anything like that, you know. Should have been a different band's name because it was a different band, you know. We got a new yeah. singer in, we got a keyboard player in with a new bass player. It was just me and Matthew as original, so, you know, majority of it was, it was a completely new thing. So that was probably our only, you know, downfall. We had to have separation probably a bit further than what we did. Uh-huh. Because obviously the, the album, um, Real Estate, um, mm. Gordon and Teapot Studios, is that, is that up in Dundee, I yeah, think? Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 I know that studio well for the view, oh, the view record, yeah. the first record up there with the view, yeah, because he did really well with them. Um, Robin Evans still mm-hmm. lives there, still does recordings up there. Yeah, it's a great studio. Um, it's just a great place to, to, to create your records out of it, out in just a minute, fucking nowhere, no distractions. You've got a mushroom field, just a couple of uh, steps up uh, on the hill. I can go yeah. and pick my mushrooms <laughs> and let them dry out. But um and uh but uh, yeah, it was just a great great family atmosphere. Had little Mo Evans, um this is Sam Sam um Sam Brown's son, Sam and Robin's son, you know, him growing up with his sister as well. And um yeah, it's just uh, you know, a good little time, good place to record that record. Had a lot of laughs doing that. Saw some UFOs over Perthshire. Saw some, we, were, we were high on mushrooms, but we did see <laughs> me and Dave. Me and Dave, the singer, were standing out the back uh, by the kitchen door and uh, looked up and we saw these fucking moving lights. They were chasing around and moving and we started calling to them, you know, saying, take me, come take me, you know. <laughs> so uh, we... Uh, yeah, definitely had fun doing it. Um, it was a good, good old studio. Definitely, it's a, you know, a credit for anyone. Every band to go there should go and record there, and especially a local up in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Do that. Obviously, the album uh, didn't chart, and this is kind of the the next album kind of charted at seventy six, and then the, the yeah. following album again didn't chart, which is. Again, similar. In a cold place, you mean? Yeah, uh, yeah. That, that yeah. number seventy six, and the, the 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 following one in twenty sixteen. That didn't chart either. Um, yeah. Similar, similar story with like the blue tones after the kind of yeah. highs, and um, mm. then the the kind of changes in the band or whatever. Mm. The the success seemed to kind of dip quite quickly. Yeah, what do you put that? Didn't it kind of like the the different environment, eh? the music scene? Then the like music changing. Other fa- yeah, other factors to do with um, people growing up and having families. People now, you know, you you our fan base are no longer going to clubs, going to uh, venues, not going out on a Saturday night. They're now got uh, they're settling down. You know, their their lives are changing. The people are well. well the listenership, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're changing. They're not hitting it as much, you know, you've got young kids at home, can't go out as much, can't go out to that gig on Saturday night, can't get, find a babysitter. So that's a part of it as well. Your, your, the fan base is changing. Um, it, obviously, the 
uh, clear ones or that the, um, you don't have the big machine we didn't have the big machine behind us of the music industry of a record company major record company even you know mm-hmm. um though we had friends and uh very well liked in the industry it, it you know no one and also no one wanted to take on you know any other major major they wouldn't want to take on the debt that we run up with a&m and mm-hmm. it was up to like 900 900 grand you know so it's a, and it's still been paid off today. I think they've started to, they've wiped it off, and one of the companies done an agreement that you know we're never going to get this money back now. These records are not really selling anymore. No prints of these records. So they're all on Spotify, and you know that's not you know you know we're going to earn any money on that. And um, so we had a massive debt carrying over. No man, no record company wanted to touch us really. And we became we just became in house, you know, doing mm-hmm. our own thing. So there we are, two, two, two reasons. So you could say it was that. Well, they just got bloody annoyed with us, you know, maybe politically or hearing Nigel and Mafia, not hearing enough of me could be down to that. You know? <laughs> it, it was always them, and they always talk about uh, you know, how how uh, how their cabbages are growing. It's, <laughs> it's funny though when you like, when you said about people having families and kind of. Growing up and not being able to go to as many gigs and things like that, obviously my my friend, I'm I'm not sure you might know him. Like I think he's on the 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 dodgy, um, Facebook fans. Yeah. You know that Stevie Moffat. He's he's a big fan of he he would kind of he'd fit into that mold because he's he's yeah. got a boy that's like Dylan's eighteen, so. He went through a phase where he never went to gigs for all these years. And it's maybe the last 10 years he started going to gigs and he takes his boy with him now. So there, there was probably that that 10-year period where a certain group of your fans would they kind of just took a back seat. And now you're mm-hmm. kind of seeing the resurgence. you got these festivals like Shine On and all these yeah. other festivals where your bands are coming back now and the mm. audience is there mm. again because the, the audience has grew up and they've come out the other end there. Their offspring has grown up, you know, as well. So they're, they're, their offspring's off at college now, so they can go up and do a weekend yeah. of weddings, yeah. Because that, 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 that's kind of, I'm maybe about two or three years behind Stevie. So yeah. I'm at that point where I'm not getting to as many gigs as I would like. Yeah, yeah. My youngest boy's 10-year-old, so... Only going to be three or four years, and I'll be I'll be able to um, start getting back out there a, a lot more than I'm at at the moment. So it's it's interesting when you say that. I hadn't thought of it like that. So it might be it might be that every band has to go through that sort of period. Every 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 band does, yeah. Every band does, and um, you know, uh, you know, people's lives move on like that. You know, I mean, I'd say this. We're not, we're not t- entirely blameless, you know. I don't want to go around and say it can't be us, you know. <laughs> it, look, you know, we're, we're we're not perfect, you know. So we, we all know that we made mistakes, said something wrong, or did something wrong, you know. It could be something like that. I can't really, you know, give enough, give, give ourselves a bit of a, you know, slap around the face, you know, naughty boy, and then just move on, you know. You know, first about it, but um, but there's other factors as well, you know. Got um. With major record companies, they've also got major um uh friends in the press, 
and to press the uh, uh, writing about bands and there's new bands coming up and you just get pushed out it's like pushed out of the, the way you're not in the, ma- in the major scene anymore i'm not getting written about in bizarre in the sun column or something you know yeah. about oh i keep a really untidy kitchen about <laughs> something like that, you know just random stories and that's what you would be getting you know um when we were like um getting into the Crossing over, if you sense, you know, when we came to the rain, then they were like, well, we, all we need now is something to get into the papers, into the big, into the red top papers, you know, and I'm like, it's getting them in there. And then we're happy. And then suddenly I started dating Denise Van Outen. They were like, yes. <laughs> but they were like, yes. Now we're getting, now we're getting like mainstream newspaper tabloid, like interest when that sort of getting names like that, you know. Uh-huh. You know, like my, my uh, the falsified story of me selling my sex stories about Denise. If you, you know, <laughs> after we split up, it falsified utterly. They, they, they fucking destroyed me, to be honest with you. It was like, but they, oh, it went quickly. But that, but it sold records, you know, and that's what kept us in the mainstream and that would have helped in the later albums. But yeah, as I say, you know, people like yourselves, you know, take a hiatus from the scene. Because they're growing, growing up with got the kids to, to to feed and grow up, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a that's plausible. I'm happy to go with that. Yeah, I mean the thing is, I mean I like touching on Denise. If you were still with Denise now, you'd have been on that um, Gogglebox. Gogglebox. You'd oh, been on Gogglebox. Yeah. You and uh, Sean Lyder yeah. and all that getting the. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's been horrible, honestly. Uh, yeah, it is that, man. He's always been in the life of the TV, and I think that's why it ended, because her agent said, it's not co- yeah, he's not cool anymore. You've got to find a cooler boyfriend. <laughs> it was as simple as that. <laughs> yeah. I laugh about it now, but it's, I was quite offended back then. But, um, yeah, it was just the game, playing mm-hmm. the game. Yeah. And that's why she's still on Gogglebox. She's still on um, Sunday lunch, and she pops up there. I'm going, for fuck's sake. Can I just watch the fucking TV in peace? <laughs> so, um, obviously, you just last the last couple of months, you just played the the three piece suite tour. Um, yeah, yeah. Was that originally scheduled a couple of years before due to COVID or something? That I was working right. at the, I was working no, at the dates. It would have been twenty five years, wasn't it? Still bought maths. We yeah. just got it. Utterly wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> so how did that go then? Obviously, you had um, support for the Supernaturals and Chris yeah. Helm. Chris yeah. Helm's another guy I've had on the, the podcast, yeah. one of my early episodes. Yeah. So how, how did the, how did that Me Tour go? It went great. Yeah, really good. Really smooth. Really happy with it. Um <coughs> Yeah, I mean, we rehearsed about three weeks before it, did like two, three days rehearsals for it, and uh, and that's it. We were very minimal rehearsals, but once it started, once we got on the roll, and like right, you know, and uh, that it just it was yeah, it went bloody quickly, really. Only about five dates, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But we we're looking to get another um, um, three piece suite tour done for the end of the year. In uh-huh. the end, we should be hearing some dates soon. I would, I should think, in November. Um, to another stint of three piece suite again, and uh, but it was really enjoyable. Some of the play- songs in there played since or ever since the record. Maybe played one of those rivers was uh, once before 
it won't, you know, when we've released it, obviously we must have played it then. It's a difficult song to do because it's quite acoustic and down. Like this. You need a classical guitar, you know, and, and it's just like, uh, it's just a pain in the arse getting all that, that shit together. Um, but, uh, and just for one song, you know. Um, but it's been great playing them all the way through from the start to beginning because um, it's like, uh, it, it's another way of playing live. It's into when we've got a little, a more of a looser set and a lot more talking happens and it can drag on a little bit, you know. Uh-huh. It's a bit, you know, change a few songs here, change. It's a bit more stressful when you're putting in a song you haven't played for, for for a year or so and you're playing it tonight and oh, fuck, I haven't rehearsed it at home and you know, I have to go. <laughs> you know, it's nerve-wracking. And um, but with the uh, three-piece sweet tour, you just know what you're doing. Everything, boom, boom, boom. Then you've got all the uh, interludes on the record, which you're playing as well uh-huh. for the sample of things. So it's all part. It's actually just like putting the uh, the needle on the record and letting it play, and that's and we're just, you know, there. Yeah. Sort of playing it live like that, you know, and um, and it's just really nice and timely. Boom, 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 boom. No fucking about no stand on stage feeling really self-conscious just you know in between songs you're like okay we've got this one coming up the which is start it's funny because there's the certain right. people are, are comfortable doing that obviously I, I went to see billy bragg you know that yeah. one after the lockdown lifted and yeah i think he spends mary's gig talking than than he does singing He's singing, yeah. He can yeah. get nice. Can get a bit like that if you leave him to do bits too much. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you've got to rein him in a little bit, and he understands. You know, but, um, he'll get a bit of nervous energy, and he'll just start talking. You know, just start talking. You know. mm-hmm. Um, but uh, other than that, you know, it's great playing with you with Chris Helm and you know, Supernatural, as you said. So, and they were just lovely. We, you know, we didn't get to hang around uh, have a drink with them as much as we liked. But they were just always friendly and um yeah, lovely lovely chaps, you know. Lovely chaps. And um Chris Elm always there were a couple of tours with him. And uh yeah, just a nice family atmosphere. No 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 issues. I mean very different from playing with Baby Bird, who mm-hmm. who was a oh, he was a foul mood pretty much every time he played with us. You know, I'd having a go at our uh, keyboard player who was just practicing up on the accordion outside, and he came out and said, "Who's this cunt?" <laughs> he's certainly not gorgeous. That, if he's in a mood like that, he's not gorgeous at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we don't, we don't play with him again. But um, others, you know, other peers, things like yeah, yeah we've had, we always have a great relationship with. You know, so it was nice to meet the Supernaturals. They yes. went down really well, which is good to see. And you know, we played their hometowns, Glasgow, and that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there has been that kind of connection with um, the Blue Tones and and Chris Helm, obviously Nigel, Mark, and Chris. But yeah. then I, I think together for a bit, went they were doing like a wee tour together. Yeah, uh, a few years back. So it's it's nice to be able to go to something like that and see. Three kind of three super big, big names together. Yeah, yeah, but with a super group thing going on, which is kind of cool, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wish they'd gotten, gotten through and they were writing songs together like that. So, you know, it was, uh, was going to produce something. Maybe down, down the line, something will come out. Um, mm. But yeah, you know, 
we'll, we'll see how that, what happens with it. I mean, uh, it's not gone quite like that. Nigel's now going into his more um, electronic music. He's always had a bit of an electronic mind, you know, so, um, the, the stuff that was coming out on Feed Peace Suite. There was a lot of resamplings and samples going on with uh with the records getting the recordings our own recordings resampling them in making something else out of them mm. um we find throughout a free piece suite but now he's like you know so he's always been electronic in mind and getting these new gadgets and usually for mp3 10 million and da 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 and creating new samples and shit and then he was playing some in the in the hotel um on on Saturday night after our gig and uh saying, bloody yeah, what's that? What's that? What's that? Like, you know, you know, you know. No, it's just go and do your own thing. Go and put go and put it all together and go and do it. You don't have to worry about us, you know. Don't need a guitar there, you don't need Matthew's drums. You got it all there. <laughs> do it. It's, it's your outlet. You, you you see that through. Do an album that was completely different from anyone would expect. I mean, alienate anyone you fucking want. Just do it. Yeah. You know. That's it. So, um, you know, he was like, oh, you know, it seemed to have a, a, the green light, you know, and I wanted him to know that. Mm-hmm. Back all the time. Um, so what do you think? It's, 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 it's a plan. It's a plan for any, any more, any new music for Dodgy, do you think? It's always, it's always something in, 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 in there, you know, we're always thinking, thinking about it. Um, it's just time and space. Uh, rec- a studio space that's cheap enough or that's free that we could do it in. You mm. know, it's, uh, it's, it's always been a bit of a difficulty to find somewhere free to do. And I've um, stand up right in a cool place. Nigel was uh, renting out this house uh, in, in sort of the corner of this farmland area, but it was a nice kind of old, seemed like an old farmer's house. It had an old, really, really old uh, uh, barn, which we, we set up in. To do the album, we could just play through the night if we liked, you know. Yeah, going to bed, you needed to sleep, but um, we 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 would know no fucking the neighbours around, so we're constantly going up there, driving up to Birmingham, going up to the, the, that area, Worcester kind of area, and um, and spending a couple of days up there because it did enough bedrooms to sleep, that kind of thing. That was free, so we could spend as much time as we like, uh, refining that album. And, yeah. and and it showed when it when it came out there was a, the how we all came together it was a culmination of giving it um air to breathe and time to develop. Whereas maybe a later album, our um, next album, what what we fight for was a bit more constrained, where Matthew wanted to get out really bloody quickly, and um and uh, you know recording was. Uh, interrupted by where we're going to record it, we you know we had to go to some tower tower studios, which is in the corner of Pershaw, and it's just like a normal rehearsal room. The guys are lovely there, but it's not what we'd always kind of been used to and seen all the huge studios that we recorded before. We did our best, we tried our best. You know, the engineer there was um using sampled drums over mm, Matthew's real drums, right. just the actual drums in the studio. The sound wasn't that great. The drums, I think, weren't, weren't getting a good sound out of it. So the guy, you know, getting around it, he would use sample drums that were activated by what was coming off of the out of the studio. And so yeah. when Matt heard it, it was like, oh, I can't have this. It's got to be the fucking real drums. I'm not having sampled drums on the big mm-hmm. drum kit. 
that's been pre-recorded. I, I don't want that. So we took it all and went back, I think, and carried it on in Nigel's house in his basement, basically, and all the drums were done. And, mm. and then Nigel wanted to uh, mix it, or he wanted to be the mixer. He'd never mixed our any of our records before, and this is going to be the first one. This is going to be the guinea pig tonight, and um, and it just took longer to do, took longer for him to mix it, and get around to it, and to to yeah. finish them off, getting them sounding good, you know. So um, processes basically. So we just need a a, a studio that's free, and it'd be in like in the back garden of Nigel's place in in in, in Wales, or we can get a good deal with maybe going up Teapot. I mean, that'd be an option. Yeah, have to do it there. That would be great because it's residential as well. We can do it in stints and you know things like that. So, and I'll, put it, I'll put it out there on the podcast for anybody that's trying to gear up the studio for for a bit. Yeah, yeah, for them. Uh, so obviously, before we go into your heroes, just the last the last bit. Obviously, you touched on uh, your artwork as well, which I've been looking through your Facebook and you're constantly posting. Pieces of yeah. drawings yeah. that you've been doing. When has that been something you've done right throughout your life? No, so I do. I mean, I one of my only credible passes from school, you know, uh, equivalent. Uh, it was a CSE, obviously, I wasn't in GCSE era. I was the last of the CSEs um, grades, and uh, that was like a, an O level equivalent, my art was when I passed. So, but, um, and then I got into the band, um, you know, I wanted to do music instead. So, I, you know, I was very lucky enough to get into the band and do that, do that track. So that's where it's a bit off now. And it's like 30 years later, I decided I'm going to come back and start doing that again. Right. Start getting, yeah, really, really because I found, um, you know, I'm not going to make any money by sitting in my bedroom writing these songs for them to be played and may not even get onto an album. Oh, uh, and 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 even then, if it isn't going to sell, what's going to make me fucking money quickly? You know, in times when I'm not gigging, through the times when we stop gigging around November, uh, you know, and then we've got all the way until May. When I'm, I, you know, you know, yeah. I, I'm not going to get a nine to five. I want to, you know, do something that get my mind active and do something that I'm I feel good at and uh, feel like I can make me to to fill the gaps between to point between playing and also. Yeah, it'd be like my pension, if you like. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's just keeping keeping active and, and, and uh, you know, not turning into a vegetable, sitting on the couch, getting lazy, getting fat, drinking beers and watching loose women. So what's, um, is, have you got a website of that that people can go to? I've only got, I've only got my um, one where I just dedicated to is on my Instagram. Right. Um, it's the underscore... The underscore Miller underscore Arts. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I have to get that refined. That 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 name is a bit of a, a mouthful. But Andy P Miller Art on the, on the, on Instagram as well. I just had one thing there, and uh, you know, I'm, I've been, you know, I've not been so business minded. I'm trying to, yeah, I've always been trying to get it set up to um, Shopify or Etsy, where it's just print on demand or anything like that. But I've done, but I. It, you know, it's just me just practicing and exercising in a sense, and doing the portraits of uh, Keith Richards and stuff. But I, I want to, um, in, a, in a sense, politicize it a bit. So I'm in that zone at the moment, trying to look at um, ways of turning it and making thinking something interesting. There's something mm-hmm. a bit more in depth with, with. I'm not just drawing a picture of Keith Richards. You know, I'm not just drawing a picture of 
um, Heidi, Heidi Lamar. You know, I'm, I'm doing something, uh, you know, currently drawing ladies with eyes closed, people with eyes closed. Right. And, um, and making people think that what am I trying to say? I'm not telling you that I'm doing it like that, doing it that way. You know, subtleties like that. I'm yeah. trying to look just to draw for the just for the fact of, that I can draw. You know, mm-hmm. I want to put something there. You know, like the music is. You know, there's a meaning within it. You know, yeah. Political. It's, it's obviously it's it's created with it's for the for the viewer to kind of work out for themselves what they get for it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, what I'll do with that, obviously, I'll, I'll tag you in all the, the stuff when I post the podcast, and I'll put all the links in there for, for people to get a hold of you and check yeah, I'll, I'll out work. Yeah, I'll send you a link to it. Yeah. Um, but aye, that's us. Towards the end of the podcast, obviously, the last bit of it is I ask my guest to but four heroes to come for dinner. Um, why? Mm-hmm. Why are your heroes, and and w- would you cook them as well? Cook them, yeah. I thought I was, I was going to cook for you. Okay, I've got to cook <laughs> for them. Um, well, first of all, came to mind. Brian Cox would be an interesting chap to have around for dinner. Mm-hmm. He's so fascinating. Uh, the, you know, anyway, you know, something to blow the, the numbers he's going to use. Uh-huh. I've never heard of a so fucking big about the universe and shit like that. It's an incredibly interesting subject, I find, and um, helps me with value, you know, that we're spinning on a rock, flying through space at some velocity. You know, uh-huh. we've all got to get along, you know. It all comes down to that whole bloody insignificant some of these problems are, but that we're facing that is quite existential. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it's funny you say Brian Cox. I, I thought about him the other night. Every time I see um, Alex James, because Blur was at the, they had a hang on BBC at the weekend for Blur, and every time I see yeah. Alex James, I get mixed up with having Brian Cox. <laughs> so, yeah. so I, I was thinking about it at the weekend because of Alex James. <laughs> <laughs> I should have said it that way, you know. Well, I'll bite him in brown dinner because he looks like Alex, Alex Jones. <laughs> <laughs> That's why. Why do you always look like Alex Jones? And how do you like your eggs? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, he'd be an interesting one. Um, another one, Jeremy Corbyn. I'd have him around. He's a interesting, very um, he's a decent chap. I I hate to be uh the um the the shit went and took to take take him down. I mean, he's he's not completely faultless. We tripped up a couple of times here and there. Yeah, nobody um, has. Though, you, you know, you look at um the world and how how the world's been the last four or five years, and how different it could have been. Could if, have been. Yeah. See yeah. if we had Jeremy Corbyn in power and Bernie Sanders in America. But yeah. instead it went the other way and we get Trump and Boris Johnson and it just went yeah, to yeah, shit, man. It seems like that pendulum is swinging and it doesn't seem to be swinging back any, any, anywhere. No. It's swinging further further over, so say, yeah, I mean, American politics, when, when they talk about um, liberals, they're actually talking about the centre-right. Mm-hmm. That's what they see as liberals, your centre and centre-right, or liberals to your conservative landscape, it was your um, US... Uh, landscape, political landscape, 
an hour as he's sort of moving towards that as we look at with yeah. Starmer. Starmer's moving further to the right, centre-right. And um, and then when you get, say, a, say a Labour government, which is kind of inevitable, well, it's hung, I'm looking, hopefully it'll be a bit of a hung parliament. So there's a huge voice on the left who's saying, you know, you ain't got, you know, we know what you're doing, you know, sort of thing. Hold yeah. them to account, you know. And you've got the people holding them to account. But you see that moving over to there, and then you see this void, you know, and then when Labour get it, get it wrong out of being neoliberal and centre-left, and then they'll think, well, the left has failed. Well, the left isn't anything to do with that centre-right part uh-huh. position Labour. And so when that fails, you'll just get another thing further right going along. And 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 I think that's what Murdoch and your um and your right-wing press really want, you know. They just want the further destruction of uh, middle-class and working-class people in the country. And yeah. It's been interesting to talk I'd have with, uh, with Jeremy, you know. Yeah, he's a good guy. I've, I mean, I had a lot of time for him, and I've, it's it's just didn't. I mean, the media just were never going to let him. No, never, never, no. The the stuff that they printed, the lies they came up with, is fucking it's despicable. But it's nothing, nothing that you wouldn't expect for the media. Yeah, nothing we wouldn't expect. You know, the Hillsborough disasters and the the way the sun treated the Liverpudlian people. Yeah. Um, yeah, that it's just there you go, and could never. I mean, I sat in the cafe today, and there was the sun on the table. Look at the way, get away from me. You know, I don't, I, I really can't yeah. get it when I go to work. Obviously, I work night shift, I get to work the night, and you get into the canteen, and there's there's newspapers, there's uh, the sun, and the daily record, and you're like, who fucking reads them? Why would you read them? What, what is there that's going to interest you in the papers? Yeah, you know, it's the breeding ground of that, that area, that uh, dumbing down of society. It was in that paper and in yeah. those cafes up and down the country. That's where that paper gets read. And it's depressing, you know. These people, they're, 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 worse, they're worse off on, under on, under this thing, a problem due to this newspaper, you know. Yeah. They, they're bedding the shit and the shit in their minds and then, their their living standards are worse off and they're without realising it, these poor people, you know. Mm-hmm. You know um, give them dignity, give them uh, re- you know, reasonable ways, and you know, they can lead dignified lives. That's a much better way. Yeah. You still have these cafes, which we shouldn't be, you know, selling this I mean, again, can't really be um you know, you could move into sort of a fascist mind by banning you know those the, the newspaper, the Sun. You know, you know. Yeah. You know, that, that's like, the thing. We, we shouldn't need to ban them anyway. People should yeah. be educated enough to know that yeah. it's fucking yeah. full of shit, and there's there's no yeah. any point in buying them. That's it's it. twenty twenty three for fuck's sake, man. Right, you know, we've gone back into the nineteen fifties. Mm. Homophobia, racism, fucking xenophobic, fucking attitudes that were around in the sixties, and I'll. Prevalent again. Yeah. It's crazy. It's definitely the crumbling of societies, uh, the columns that hold up societies, the principles are being undermined as a decent society, and um, it's appalling to watch. I mean, it is a battleground on comments, on the comments on, say, Instagram underneath, um, yeah, you, you, you stop oil um, 
uh, sites and everything where people comment in, it's all a fucking hoax and all this, and yeah. you know, and I'm like, it's just like it's hard, you know. Yeah. And I don't think COVID, COVID and the misinformation, all that helps. And conspiracies are something where this is a this the great propagator of the right wing is conspiracies. Mm-hmm. Through that, they can get their their misinformation through, and um, you know, which yeah. works very well. Works very well. Sure. Okay, next person I'll put up, um, Oliver Reed. Right. Oliver Reed is a, a great actor. Again, a bit of a wild uh, card. Um, he's very similar to the, the, the final one as well, where Peter O'Toole, sort of wild, wild boys of the acting uh, um, stables, you know, so uh, fraternity. And uh, they, they, they just, you know, for me, I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. If you would like to get in touch, the best way is on the Facebook page, Time for Heroes podcast, or on Instagram at Time for Heroes podcast, or Twitter at Time for Heroes P1, or drop me an email at Time for Heroes pod at gmail.com You'll find Time for Heroes on all podcast platforms including Spotify, Apple, Google and Amazon. Please leave a review where you can, share with others and more importantly, enjoy. Enjoy.